You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 285th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And yes, as you might have guessed, those crickets where we would normally hear Tracy's voice means that she's not going to be with us for this show. I know, I know, I share your disappointment, but she's off visiting family and left me to hold down the fort, so to speak. And so, well, you know what that means. Yep, pizza and ice cream every night for the next week. But, more to the point, it means I'll be flying solo for this episode. Uh, So let's get to it, shall we? Well, as you all will recall, we used the last show to talk about events downriver from Vicksburg, including Nathaniel Banks taking command of the Federal's Department of the Gulf, and David Farragut attempting to run past the Confederate position at Port Hudson with his ships. However, only two of the Federal ships actually made it up the Mississippi past Port Hudson. Well, naturally, Farragut was disappointed by that result, but not at all discouraged, and so he pressed on with only Albatross and Hartford. As Farragut made his way upriver, rebel steamboats fled in all directions, spreading the news that Yankee warships were once again loose between Vicksburg and Port Hudson. Farragut dropped anchor off the lower end of the DeSoto Point Canal on March 20, 1863, and for the rest of the struggle for the Mississippi River, Ulysses S. Grant, upstream, and Nathaniel Banks, downstream, would be in direct, although sometimes tenuous, communication, thanks to the Union Navy. Since he had made it past Port Hudson with only the two ships, when he reached Vicksburg, Farragut had planned on asking his foster brother, David Dixon Porter, for reinforcements. As you guys know, Porter was the commander of the Union Navy's Mississippi Squadron, which was cooperating with Grant, operating upriver from Vicksburg. Anyway, at this time, Porter was actually up Steele's Bayou, and so temporarily out of touch. However, when the commander of the Yankees' Ram Squadron, Alfred Ellett, learned of Farragut's predicament, 
he offered to reinforce Farragut with two of his rams. And so as the sun rose on March 25th, Lancaster and Switzerland raced downriver past DeSoto Point into a hail of shellfire from the rebels' Vicksburg batteries. Lancaster was sunk, and Switzerland was struck in her boiler, but she drifted downstream on the current to the safety of Farragut's warships, whose engineers repaired the damage. When a frazzled porter finally emerged from Steele's Bayou, he was glad to learn that Farragut had come back upriver and that there were once again Federal warships operating on the Mississippi between Vicksburg and Port Hudson. He actually urged Farragut to descend back downstream as quickly as possible to the mouth of the Red and re-establish the blockade of that vital river. In explaining the importance of re-establishing the Union blockade of the mouth of the Red River, Porter wrote to his foster brother, telling him that when the Federals cut off rebel steamboat traffic down the Red, quote, It is death to these people. They get all their supplies from there. Farragut needed little urging to re-establish the blockade of the Red River. He bid farewell to Vicksburg on March 28th, and the odd trio of Hartford, Albatross, and Switzerland dropped down the Mississippi. Despite the tiny size of his flotilla, Farragut was determined to interdict, or at the very least disrupt, Rebel River traffic and also do whatever he could to help Nathaniel Banks operate against Port Hudson. The Federal ships anchored off the mouth of the Red on April 1st. A short time later, Farragut approached Port Hudson and dispatched a courier to Banks. To get downstream past Port Hudson, the courier floated past the Confederate guns in a small boat disguised as a log. He carried the information that Grant hoped to send McPherson's Corps from Lake Providence to the Red River as soon as a sufficient number of light draft transports and barges became available. At that time, though, all such craft were involved in the Yazoo Pass and Steele's Bayou operations, so Grant wouldn't be able to send McPherson right away. At any rate, when he did eventually reach the Red, the plan was that McPherson would move downstream to the Mississippi and land at Bayou Serra, a short distance above Port Hudson. He then would cooperate with Banks in capturing the Confederate strongpoint. Well, purely by coincidence, Banks had settled on a plan that dovetailed nicely with Grant's proposed course of action. You see, not long after arriving in Louisiana, Banks had received an intriguing suggestion from Brigadier General Godfrey Weitzel, who was stationed at Brashear City, about 70 miles southwest of New Orleans. FYI, Brashear City is actually now Morgan City. But in any case, from his location in south-central Louisiana, on the east bank of the Atchafalaya River, Weitzel had a different geographical perspective on the strategic situation. 
he suggested that the best way to link up with Grant wasn't to attack Port Hudson, but to avoid it altogether and slip into the Vicksburg-Port Hudson corridor from the west by way of Alexandria, Louisiana, which was located on the Red River. Once he'd marched overland to Alexandria, Banks would be able to interdict the flow of enemy supplies on the Red River, much of which went to the Confederate garrison at Port Hudson. The genesis of this idea was found in the fact that Weitzel had discovered the strategic possibilities offered by the unusual X-shaped confluence of the Mississippi and Red Rivers. The Mississippi approaches the confluence from the northeast, the Red from the northwest. At the confluence, generally referred to as the mouth of the Red, some of the current from that river enters the Mississippi and flows southeast past Port Hudson down to Baton Rouge, then to New Orleans, and ultimately to the Gulf of Mexico. However, much of the current of the Red veers off to the south just before the confluence with the Mississippi and forms the Atchafalaya River. And for the geographically challenged, the Atchafalaya might be thought of as the misnamed lower portion of the Red River. Okay, well, at any rate, the Atchafalaya is a broad, navigable stream that flows almost due south through a vast swamp of the same name and reaches the Gulf of Mexico about 130 miles west of the Mississippi. West of and parallel to the Atchafalaya is Bayou Tesh, a smaller stream that meanders along the edge of the waterlogged alluvial plain. This is important to our story because, significantly, the land west of Tesh is generally high and dry, with roads suitable for the passage of an army all the way north to Alexandria. Well, with civil and political affairs in occupied Louisiana beginning to take shape, Banks decided to do as Weitzel suggested. He would move as many Union troops as possible to Brashear City, cross the Atchafalaya River, then turn north and advance up the west side of Bayou Tesh to Opelousas, 60 miles south of Alexandria. The few available light draft transports in the department would accompany the army on Bayou Tesh, though Banks expected his men and animals to live off the land as much as possible. Smaller warships of the Gulf Blockading Squadron would ascend the Atchafalaya, clear away rebel forts and gunboats, and secure the Army's line of communication and supply with Brashear City. Once he reached Opelousas, Banks would then decide whether to press on to Alexandria or return to the Mississippi River to deal with Port Hudson. All in all, it was a good plan with significant strategic potential. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Meanwhile, from Washington, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck continued to nag, um, I mean, remind, Nathaniel Banks of his mission. At the beginning of February, Halleck wrote Banks with obvious frustration, quote, The President expects that you will permit no obstacle to prevent you from cooperating with Grant by some movement up the Mississippi River. Of such vital importance is this cooperation that nothing but absolute necessity will excuse any further delay on your part. And then at the end of February, Halleck adopted an ominous tone, warning Banks that with regard to his movement against Port Hudson, there was, quote, much dissatisfaction here at the delay, end quote. In fact, Banks was about to move, but not as Halleck expected. At the end of March, he ferried two divisions of the Army of the Gulf to the west bank of the Mississippi River. Grover's division floated down Bayou Lafouche from Donaldsonville to Thibodeau, then rattled westward on the Opelousas and Great Western Railroad to Brashear City. Emery's division traveled all the way from Algiers to Brashear City on the same rickety railroad. Thomas Sherman's division and part of Augur's division remained behind to safeguard New Orleans and Baton Rouge against the possibility of an attack by the Confederate's Port Hudson garrison. In leaving behind a large number of troops to defend against any aggressive rebel move, Banks was right to be careful. But in reality, he overestimated the Confederate commander at Port Hudson, Franklin Gardner, who demonstrated even less initiative than Pemberton up at Vicksburg. Anyway, on April 11th, the Federal force at Brashear City, now 16,000 strong and with banks and personal command, crossed the Atchafalaya River and advanced north along the west bank of Bayou Tesh, past fields green with sugarcane. The movement meant that the Union offensive against the southern flank of the Vicksburg-Port Hudson Corridor finally was underway. 
The Bayou Teche country is the heart of French-speaking Louisiana. It was defended by Confederate General Richard Taylor's small force of about 3,000 rebel soldiers. Up in Virginia, Taylor had helped Stonewall Jackson drive banks out of the Shenandoah Valley the previous spring, and now Taylor yearned to do the same thing here in his native Louisiana. But unfortunately for him, Richmond's policy of siphoning off men and material from the Trans-Mississippi left him without sufficient strength to strike a blow against the enemy. As evidence mounted that Banks was planning a movement northward from Brashear City, Taylor constructed a line of earthworks on either side of Bayou Teche, four miles north of Pattersonville. The left end of the rebel line rested on Grand Lake, part of the Atchafalaya Swamp, while the right ended at an impassable marsh. The rebel gunboat Diana provided some artillery support from Bayou Teche, which bisected the fortifications. Taylor's defensive works here were named Fort Bisland. Banks launched a two-pronged attack against Taylor's line on April 12th through 14th. While Emory's division deployed in front of the Confederate earthworks and held their attention by engaging in an exchange of artillery fire, Grover's division carried out an amphibious envelopment of the rebel left flank when the handful of Union transports shuttled back and forth across Grand Lake, slowly ferrying thousands of Federal troops past the eastern extremity of Fort Bisland. The troops went ashore near Franklin, well behind the Confederate position, and Taylor was caught completely off guard by this move. When he learned that the Yankees had gained his rear, Taylor abandoned Fort Bisland in the middle of the night, burned the Diana, and hurried north. The rebels had to fight their way past Grover at a curve in Bayou Teche named Irish Bend and narrowly escaped being cut off. The sharp clashes at Fort Bisland and Irish Bend cost each side about 600 casualties. Had not the shortage of transports delayed Grover's movement on Grand Lake, the entire Confederate force might have been trapped. But still, for Banks, the victory at Fort Bisland, however incomplete, was a promising start to the campaign. As for the Confederates, after being flushed out of Fort Bisland, Taylor retreated northward up the west side of Bayou Teche. Banks followed close behind. The two forces skirmished occasionally, but there was little Taylor could do to slow the Federal advance. As Confederate morale plummeted, one-third of Taylor's force deserted, many in hopes of going home and protecting their families and possessions from the invaders. Banks reached Vermilionville, modern-day Lafayette, on April 17th, and Opelousas three days later on the 20th. As the Yankees approached, the governor, legislators, and bureaucrats of the Confederate state government packed up for the second time and skedaddled to Shreveport and the far northwest corner of Louisiana. Meanwhile, Taylor retreated to Alexandria. 
It was the Shenandoah Valley all over again, except, unhappily for Taylor, this time the roles were reversed, and Nathaniel Banks was victorious. The Confederate retreat was on the verge of becoming a rout, but Taylor caught a break when Banks unexpectedly broke off the pursuit. The Federal troops paused at Opelousas for two weeks while their commander rushed back to New Orleans by steamboat and railroad in order to deal with the numerous civil and political responsibilities that demanded his attention. Remember, Banks wasn't just commander of the Army of the Gulf. He was also military governor of Louisiana and in charge of reconstructing the state government. At any rate, it was during this initial phase of the campaign that Farragut's courier arrived and informed Banks of Grant's plans to send McPherson's corps in his direction. Naturally, Banks was delighted at this news. Everything seemed to be coming together even better than he'd anticipated. Looking forward to McPherson's arrival, Banks informed Grant that his forces would be in Alexandria on the Red River in the very near future. And Banks was as good as his word. He returned to Opelousas on May 4th and sent his soldiers hurrying north toward Alexandria the Federal column fairly raced across the level Louisiana countryside. For example, Weitzel's brigade covered 90 miles in three days. Now, as you guys will recall, Kirby Smith, commanding Confederate forces in the Trans-Mississippi, had moved his headquarters from Little Rock, Arkansas, to Alexandria, since that place was on the Red and that river was becoming more and more important in everyone's eyes. Well, now, with Taylor unable to halt or even delay the hard-marching Yankees, Kirby Smith had no choice but to evacuate Alexandria, and in fact, had to abandon the entire lower Red River Valley to the Federals. At this, thousands of panicked civilians departed along with the rebel soldiers, many of them herding their slaves toward Texas for safekeeping. Kirby Smith followed the refugee Confederate state government up the Red to Shreveport, with Taylor and the remnant of his force following behind as a rear guard. Farragut described this exodus as a, quote, general stampede. During the advance from Brashear City to Alexandria, a distance of about 150 miles, but considerably longer by the meandering roads back in those olden days, the Union soldiers in Banks' column consumed or destroyed large amounts of food and forage and confiscated much-needed boats, wagons, and draft animals. It was during this march that Banks like Grant in northern Mississippi, discovered that certain heretofore untouched, fertile, bountiful areas of the Confederacy 
were capable of supporting an army on the march. It's not certain whether the Union troops knew or cared about the emerging policy of waging war against the Confederacy's resources, but there was a growing conviction in the Federal ranks that Southerners, regardless of political allegiance, should suffer for the sin of secession. As a result of this mindset, foraging degenerated into vandalism, and the fertile Bayou Tesh country was devastated. About 6,000 slaves were liberated by or made their way to the federal column, and many of them joined in the orgy of destruction. While Banks moved overland toward Alexandria, a part of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron under Lieutenant Commander Augustus Cook was busy on the Atchafalaya River. Cook's mission was to advance in concert with the Army and open navigation of the river to Union shipping. Well, having failed to halt Banks, Taylor hoped to stop Cook. On April 14th, the day the Confederates fought their way out of the trap at Irish Bend, a former Union, but now Confederate, Ram, Queen of the West, made a surprise night attack against four Federal vessels on Grand Lake. It was a bold but futile gesture. A storm of Yankee shellfire set the rebel Ram on fire, and she blew up with a heavy loss of life. With the well-traveled Queen of the West finally out of the way, Cook steamed northward through the Atchafalaya Swamp. On April 20th, the Union flotilla reached Butte La Rose and made short work of Fort Burton, a tiny redoubt mounting only two old guns. On May 1st, Arizona and Estrella emerged from the Atchafalaya and cautiously entered the Red. No rebel vessels were in sight, so the two gunboats turned downstream toward the Mississippi, where Hartford, Albatross, and Switzerland maintained their lonely vigil at the mouth of the Red. Upon his arrival, Cook reported to the greatly relieved Farragut that the Atchafalaya was open to the Gulf of Mexico, which meant Port Hudson was bypassed. Farragut received more good news a few days later when Porter appeared at the head of a flotilla of ironclads from the Mississippi Squadron. Porter announced that Grant had crossed the Mississippi River below the town of Grand Gulf. After delivering this news to Farragut, Porter then steamed up the Red to meet Banks at Alexandria. The Army of the Gulf marched into Alexandria on May 7th six days after Cook reached Farragut. Banks was immensely pleased when he reached Alexandria. His six-week campaign in central Louisiana had been wildly successful. For the first time in the war, he'd carried out a major military operation without experiencing defeat or disaster. In a letter to his wife, Banks boasted, quote, Our success has been splendid. I'll say it is the cleanest, the best-conceived, and best-executed campaign of the war. 
Of course, that was an exaggeration. But Banks did deserve considerable credit for the success of the Bayou Teche campaign. He directed a large and complex operation that required cooperation between the Army and Navy. He overcame weak but spirited enemy resistance and gained his objective, Alexandria. And faced with formidable logistical challenges, he partially subsisted his mobile command on the Louisiana countryside, doing so two weeks before Grant's far more celebrated use of the same method in Mississippi during that general's maneuvering to isolate Vicksburg. Here, in the process, Banks devastated a large swath of Louisiana countryside and gobbled up or destroyed immense amounts of foodstuff that otherwise would have gone to Confederate forces. And finally, by rampaging through central Louisiana when he did, Banks kept Taylor and Kirby Smith occupied and made it possible for Grant, as we'll see, to move his troops down the west side of the Mississippi River without enemy interference. Okay, so having said all of that, it meant that upon successfully reaching the Red River at Alexandria, Banks was ready, was in position to carry out joint operations with Grant against either Vicksburg or Port Hudson. This was the high point of Nathaniel Banks' military career, and even Henry Halleck in Washington was impressed. He told Banks, The operations of your army have been truly brilliant and merit high praise. But, never one to praise without nagging, Halleck again urged Banks to unite with Grant as soon as possible and gain possession of the Mississippi. Making reference to the war in Virginia, Halleck told Banks that with regard to opening the Mississippi River, quote, It is worth to us forty Richmonds. Opening the Mississippi was exactly what Nathaniel Banks wanted to do, but it was not to be. Unlike Sherman at Chickasaw Bayou, McClernand at Arkansas Post, and Grant at Vicksburg, Banks didn't have a sufficient number of transports in the Department of the Gulf to carry his army long distances over water. This was the reason why Banks' troops had marched over 200 miles from Brashear City to Alexandria instead of cruising up the Atchafalaya River on a convoy of steamboats. Even the movement of Grover's single division across Grand Lake during the fight for Fort Bisland had stretched available transportation to the limit. In any case, after pausing at Opelousas, Banks had eagerly continued on to Alexandria because he believed that Grant was moving McPherson's Corps south from Lake Providence on a large number of shallow draft transports and barges and Banks was confident that his transportation problems would be solved when this mobile amphibious force joined his land-bound army on the Red River. 
But by the time Banks reached Alexandria, the strategic situation in the lower Mississippi Valley had changed dramatically. When he rode into town, Banks was delighted to find half a dozen federal ironclads tied up along the waterfront. But when he conferred with Porter, he received a tremendous shock. Porter told Banks that Ulysses S. Grant and his entire army, including McPherson's Corps, had crossed over to the east side of the Mississippi below Vicksburg and were marching away from the river into the interior of Mississippi. Nathaniel Banks was stunned by this news. What had happened? Where was Grant going? And what was Banks to do now? That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Louisiana in the Civil War, Essays for the Sesquicentennial by Terry L. Jones. This book is filled with essays that were originally published as a series of newspaper articles, and we enjoyed reading through it immensely. Jones has also written a book about the 12,000 or so Louisiana infantry who fought in Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. It's titled, Lee's Tigers, and we also recommend it. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. You can also find a link to our Tee Public storefront, where you can support the podcast by purchasing stuff like t-shirts, sweatshirts, and coffee mugs with the podcast logo and other designs on them. Also at the website, you'll find the Donate button, which, yes, as you guessed, lets you make a donation to the podcast. Or you can find out about the Strawfoot Brigade and then head over to Patreon and enlist in the brigade to help support the podcast on a monthly basis, like Onjay, CJ, Neil, Luke, and Gavin did this past week. So, lots of ways for you to help support the podcast. Or, just tell someone about the show. Word of mouth is always the best advertising. All right, that's about it, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.